Well, again, welcome. It's good to, to be with you this morning. I'm looking forward to diving into our, our sermon today. Today's actually going to be our last sermon in 1 John for a little while. Uh, next week, Vince is going to be preaching out of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And then the Sunday after that, we actually start Advent. Can you believe it's already that time of year for Advent to begin? Uh, we're, our Advent series, uh, through the course of those few weeks, is going to be called God with us. And we're really going to look at what is, it, what is the heart of Christ towards us as Jesus has come to rescue us. So make plans to come out for that. It's a great time to invite uh, friends, family, neighbors, people who don't yet know Christ to come and be with us. And next, starting next week, we actually have a, a little giveaway for you. I won't tell you what it is, so you'll have to come back and check it out. But over the next few Sundays, we have some items that we'll be passing along to you that we hope encourage you uh, during this Advent season. So as we get ready to get into 1 John chapter 3, my mother, Carolyn, is going to read the text this morning. <clears throat> Today's scripture is 1 John 3, 19 through 24. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, you are great and wonderful. God, you've made yourself known to us. And so we come before you acknowledging your power. We come before you acknowledging your presence today. And I pray that as we open up your word now, that you'd help us to be attentive to your spirit through the preaching of your word. Help us to see what you want us to see, to receive what you want us to receive. God, we pray that as we spend time now in your word together, that you would draw us near to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, throughout life, all of us will experience different illnesses and ailments along the way. It's a part of the reality of the world we live in, the lives we have in the midst of a, a fallen and broken world. And when those things crop up, what is it that all of us want to figure out as quickly as possible? How do I get rid of this? How, how do I fix whatever it is that's going on with me? We want to see if there's a remedy to what we're experiencing. Now, sometimes there isn't, and that can be really hard. Other times, there are many paths or processes that can be pursued to relieve our discomfort or distress. And often, it depends on where you look and who you ask. But what do we do when we have a spiritual ailment? In particular, with dealing with self-condemnation or spiritual discouragement, what do we do when our heart, in a spiritual sense, feels sick? If you've been a follower of Jesus for a while, you've likely had moments where you felt unsure or felt unstable in your relationship with God. Maybe experiencing doubt of who God is, doubting whether he really does accept you for who you are. And in those moments, instead of having confidence before him, you can feel confused, maybe condemned, feel detached or distant. So what do you do with that? How are you to overcome those kinds of things? Well, thankfully, we're in the middle of a letter written by a pastor a pastor who deeply loves Jesus and his people. And once again, his pastoral heart comes out in our text today. 
What the Apostle John shows us and tells us is that the remedy to spiritual doubt and spiritual discouragement, the remedy to self-condemnation isn't self-help. And it isn't subjective suggestions. It's rooted in objective truth and objective knowledge. Knowledge about ourselves and knowledge about our God. Listen, maybe you've struggled with these things in the past. Maybe you're struggling with some of these things right now. Maybe you will struggle with them in the future. You'll come along someone, alongside someone who is. Whatever the case may be and wherever you are in your relationship with God, the truth of this text is spiritually refreshing water to wayward hearts and weary souls. And so my hope for you is that you'll experience that deep refreshment today and in the days ahead as you journey with into Jesus. So let's dive into our text today. First John chapter three, verses 19 through, 14, through 24. And may God bless the preaching of his word today. Throughout this letter, John has been seeking to help his audience, he's been seeking to help us understand the difference between what a true follower of Jesus is and a false follower of Jesus. He, he wants to help us understand that so that his original audience and us can have assurance about our relationship with God. To do that, he's given us these diagnostics for assessing where we are spiritually. He's helped us to look at what we believe and, and how we live and how we love. And what he said throughout this letter so far, it's been challenging. John isn't laying out fluffy spirituality here. He's calling us to genuine faith in the real and risen Jesus. He's calling us to actually follow Jesus in all of our life seeing our lives look more and more like his. But with all of these specific assessments in mind, and the last one in particular that we looked at last week, something can happen. We can become discouraged. We can feel condemnation rise up from within us and when we struggle along the way in this life. And so we see in verse 19, John wants us to know we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. He wants us to know we're of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. He wants us to know that we're actually in Christ. He wants us to know that we're secure. Now, when the Bible talks about our heart, it's not talking about the thing that's beating in your chest. The heart, as scripture talks about it, is really the center of who you are. It's where the motivational structure of your life resides. From your heart flows your will. From your heart flows your emotions and your actions, your belief and your conscience. But our hearts can be fickle things. They can play tricks on us. In 1988, rock band Roxette told us to listen to your heart. I mean, that's the mantra of our culture, isn't it? You do you. Whatever feels right inside, whatever your heart says to you, just run with that. Do whatever you think is the best. But is that really always a good idea? I mean, your heart can say some pretty whack things to you and about you. Proverbs chapter four, verse 23 says, keep your heart with all vigilance. In other words, guard your heart, protect it, be aware, be alert. Why? For from it flow the springs of life. Everything flows out of your heart. So we need to pay attention to what's actually going on with our heart. Our heart matters. And our heart needs reassurance. It needs reassurance. That's okay if you find yourself saying, man, I need to be reassured of my standing before God. But when you struggle, John doesn't want you to be subjective when you're trying to reassure your heart before God. No, instead, he gives us three objective things, 
three objective things to look at and to do in order to provide a remedy for a heart that's in need of encouragement, a remedy for a heart that's in need of assurance. And again, they're all rooted in knowing and remembering truth. He calls us to look at our lives, to look to our God, and to look to the Spirit. We see the first, a call to look at our lives in verse 19. Let me read it for us again. It says, by this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. This is connected to the previous section, but really to the letter as a whole, that our actions of love toward one another give assurance of having a new heart. Why? How how does it do that? Because there is no way for you to love others like Jesus loves you if Jesus hasn't invaded your life. There's no way for you to love your brothers and sisters to be willing to lay down your life on their behalf unless Jesus has remastered you. He's the one now sitting on the throne of your life. Because when you rebelled against God, when you chose sin over God and you've sought to go your own way, what that means is, is that you've put yourself at the forefront of your life. You rule your own life. But when the grace and mercy of God comes to bear on your life and you turn away from your sin and you turn away from your selfishness and your self-dependence and turn towards your savior who died on the cross in your place, you are given a new heart. A new heart that no longer lives for self but for him who died and rose again. So John says, you can know, you can know you have new life in Christ because you are loving one another like Christ. It's the same sentiment we saw in verse 14 last week. Look a, a little bit above on your, paper, on your page. It says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers and sisters. You can know, you can have confidence because you see this fruit in your life. So listen, if you're struggling, if you're feeling distant from God or you're doubting God, you can know you're of the truth. You can know you are in Christ. You can reassure your heart by looking at the fruit of your life. Overall, Are you walking in obedience to King Jesus? Are you striving to love your brothers and sisters like Jesus loved you? Not in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Not perfectly. John already spoke to that. But is it your pursuit? Is it the trajectory of your life? Last week I said that it's easier said than done to love one another like Jesus does, joyfully and willingly and sacrificially. And the honest reality is it's hard and we don't get it right all the time. Because that's true, because we struggle to love one another in this way, because we struggle to walk in obedience to Jesus in all of life, it can lead us down a path of questioning who we say we are and wondering if God really does accept us. Sometimes I don't live or love like this, so does that mean I'm not actually a Christian? Well, thankfully, John doesn't leave us with just looking at our lives. He also calls us to look to our God. Look at verse 20. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. I really appreciate the way John words this. Did you notice he doesn't say if your heart condemns you. He says whenever our heart condemns us. This seems to indicate that this is not infrequent in the life of a believer, the life of a follower of Jesus. It's not just for a few people. So listen, if you experience this, if you experience condemnation rising up within you, condemning yourself from time to time, know that that's a normal experience of the Christian life, but it doesn't have to stay that way. 
But why is that the case? Why do we at times struggle with self-condemnation? And what does that actually look like in our own lives? Well, first, I think it's important for us to understand what condemnation actually is. Condemnation is a declaration of guilt and deserved punishment for something we've done. It's a declaration of guilt and deserved punishment for something we've done. So what that means is, is that condemnation in and of itself isn't bad. Romans chapter six tells us the wages or the consequences of our sin, of our rebellion, of choosing to go our own way is death. So if you have rebelled against a holy God and broken his holy law, you deserve his holy wrath. Anything besides that would make God unjust, would make him unholy. And so you stand rightly condemned when you stand on your own. But if you are in Christ, if you have a relationship with Jesus, then when your own heart condemns you, it comes about because you have, instead of focusing on Christ, instead of focusing on God, you have a hyper focus on yourself. You can become overwhelmed with a sense of guilt and shame about something you've done or something you've not done. Self-condemnation can actually be another form of pride because you just look at you instead of looking to God. See, self-condemnation is different than conviction. In both instances, you may have disobeyed God in some way, but instead of being focused on self, conviction comes about because of the work of the Spirit within you to lead you to repentance because you've disobeyed God. Now, a condemning heart can be fueled by that false idea within ourselves, but can also be fueled by false teachers and teaching. In the immediate context, that's likely what's going on with these followers of Jesus. There's been a group of people who've left this local church to pursue a false gospel, and it's causing John's audience to doubt their faith, to doubt their life with Christ. They have people saying to them things like, you're not a good enough Christian, you're not the right kind of Christian. False teaching can make you think you don't know the right things or aren't doing the right things to be accepted by God. Self-condemnation can also be fueled by the lies from the enemy. Satan is a deceiver. He's the father of lies. And he can come at you with temptation to sin, promising you joy and promising you fulfillment. And when you give in to that temptation and sin, he crushes you with condemnation whispering things with a forked tongue. Like, wow, you call yourself a Christian? You really think God is going to accept you now that you've done that thing, said that thing, acted like that again? Man, you keep messing up in the same way a lot. God must be really disappointed with you. Have you ever had those thoughts creep into your head? Does that sound familiar to any of you? I know it does for me. Man, it can be so discouraging. And when this happens, when your heart condemns you, you lose confidence to come before God. You lose confidence to come before him. You hide. You hide from God. You hide from others. Instead of running to God to fellowship with him, you run away from him. You don't want to fellowship with him through his word and through prayer. You find yourself not wanting to be with God's people either because you feel unworthy or because you've grown uninterested. And that's how you can start to know if you're listening to the subjectivity of your heart. Do you find yourself hiding? Do you find yourself hiding from God and from others? See, when you sit in self-condemnation, your heart can start to grow cold 
and your affections for Jesus and his good ways grow weak. Like a fire with no more logs being put on it to continue that flame growing can start to peter out. It can happen slowly, and before you know it, you find yourself feeling distant and far from God. I've seen this happen in my own life. Most often, it's when it's, been hap- it's happened when I've struggled with the same temptation and sin for a prolonged period of time. And instead of running to God, instead of looking to God and the gospel and to his people, I can be tempted to go to quick hit distractions in my life. Instead of thinking about who he is and who I am in him, I can just look at a to-do list or look at my phone or, or try to find things to distract my attention because I can wrestle with trying to find my worth in what I do find my worth and what I can accomplish, which all of which only reinforce a lack of confidence to come before God because I'm trying to manage on my own. Forgetting the gospel, I'm trying to clean myself up on my own before I come before God again. Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever find that's true for you? But church, there's hope because God is greater than our hearts. God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Now, what exactly does that mean? Well, it can be terrifying or comforting. I mean, apart from grace, it's terrifying because you can't hide from God. And as much as you might try, and if you're rebelling against him, as we all do, then like I said, you stand rightly condemned before him. But because of grace, the fact that God knows everything about you is a source of great comfort to you. He knows every single thing about you past, present, and future, and he doesn't cast you off. He doesn't reject you. He doesn't crush you. He came to you to rescue and restore you. Romans chapter seven, Paul is talking about his wrestling with sin and how he wants to obey God and oftentimes doesn't obey him. And he wrestles with this over and over again. And he ends this section by saying, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Do you ever feel wretched? Like, what hope do I actually have? I'm wicked before God. I'm a broken person before him. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Thankfully, he gives the answer. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's who can deliver you. That's who can make you new and has made you new if you're in Christ. Jesus obeyed God perfectly, walking this earth just like you and I, never wrestling with disobedience. He was tempted, but without sin, And then he willingly went to a cross to die in the place that you deserve to die for your rebellion, for your condemnation. He took all of that on himself for you. And listen, if you don't yet know Christ yet, I wanna invite you to him today. If you're feeling condemnation, find your hope in Jesus. Turn away from your sin and turn to Christ in faith because here's the reality of what happens for all of us when we place our faith in Jesus. The next verse in Romans chapter eight, verse one says this, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not some condemnation, not condemnation from time to time. There is none for you if you're in Jesus. There's none, brother and sister, Your heart might rise up to condemn you. False teachers might confuse you. The enemy might whisper lies of discouragement to you, but none of those things have the final word over you and about you. First Corinthians chapter four, Paul says, it's a small thing to be judged by others. I don't care what you think about me. I don't even judge myself, he says, because I entrust myself to the judgment of God. 
So then, when your heart condemns you or seeks to lead you astray, don't look within. Don't close in on yourself. Look to God. Your heart says wrong things sometimes, but God is bigger and God is greater than your heart. He has authority over your heart and he speaks a better word to you. He speaks a better word about you and over you. He says grace, grace upon grace. He says forgiven, he says set free, he says made new, he says son, he says daughter. He knows it all and he calls you his own. Some of you have been listening to the lies of your heart and the lies of the enemy and false teachers for far too long. Brother and sister, if that's you, come out of that. Experience the freedom knowing that God is greater than your heart. God is greater than your heart. And I've needed this in my own journey and I still do. There is a remedy to the spiritual ailment of a condemning heart. The grace of the great physician. The great physician who came to seek and to save and who invites the weary and the burdened to come to him. Church, Jesus has the final word over your heart and over your life and he has declared it is finished. In Jesus and through Jesus, you are not condemned. But also in Jesus and through Jesus, you will be convicted when you don't live in the ways and will of God. It's the kindness of the Lord that leads you to repentance, to lead you back to him, which is where John goes next in our text. When we look to God, we can experience confidence again. Look at verses 21 to the beginning of verse 24. John writes, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. What's the result of a reassured heart? When you look to God, what's the result of that? You have confidence before him again. When you're reminded of your standing before God, when you're reassured that in and through Jesus, he has declared you righteous. He's declared you cleansed from all of your sin and shame. You can have a clear conscience. And instead of hiding from God, you can run to him. You can run to him for help and hope. Hebrews chapter four, verses 15 and 16. The author of Hebrews writes this, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus has walked this path before you. He knows the difficulties of living in this world, but he is one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So what's the result of that? What do we get from that? He says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When you are assured of who you are in Christ, you can draw to the, near the throne of grace with confidence. Confidence that's a freedom that you can experience without fear and without shame. Freedom to be and do all God has called you to. See, when you come in confidence, and not condemnation, it leads to conformity to Christ in your life. It leads you to pray for help. It leads you to ask for help and grace to be changed and transformed, to see your life look more and more like Jesus's life. Because God is greater than your heart, because he's lavished grace on you, you can more fully enter into relationship with him and see your will and your heart aligned more and more to his. 
to help you walk in obedience to his commands, which are always for your good and always for your joy. And what are his commands? John doesn't give you a long list of things to do. He tells you to believe in Jesus and love one another. To believe in Jesus and love one another because everything else flows from that. So when your heart needs to be reassured, look at the fruit of your life and look to God. Obedience affirms your abiding. You not only abide in him, but he abides in you. You and I are not left to ourselves. Now this leads to the last objective thing that John gives us that we can do to reassure our hearts. He calls us to look to the spirit. Look at the end of verse 24. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Now some of you have a sensitive conscience. Like lots of different things pop up in your life. You find yourself wrestling to sleep well at night or you wake up thinking about something that you might've done or you might've said how people perceive you and feeling like, man, does God really still accept me? Am I really saved? Am I really a Christian? You find yourself just sensitive to so many things in your life. Others of you, I worry from time to time, don't have a sensitive conscience. You have a seared conscience. Your, your, your heart has kind of been burned over on the outside. It's impenetrable. Hebrews chapter three says that sin is deceitful and it can harden your heart. And so not having a sensitive conscience, you have a seared conscience and you don't ever feel guilt about anything, no need to repent about anything. What John is calling us to is not to have a sensitive conscience or a seared conscience. He's calling you to have a spirit-informed conscience where you are looking to and attentive to and listening to the spirit, not what your heart says, not what the world says about you. What does the spirit say to you? Who is the spirit? He's the helper. He's the counselor. He's the one who imparts life to you. He's the one that brings freedom, that empowers faithfulness, that brings conviction. The spirit's the one that leads you to repentance and to faith and change. So as one pastor from a long time ago said, if we would set our hearts at rest when they accuse and condemn us, we must look for evidence of the spirit's working. And particularly, whether he's enabling us to believe in Christ, to obey God's commands, and to love our brothers and sisters. For the condition of Christ dwelling in us and of our dwelling in him is this comprehensive obedience and the evidence of the indwelling is the gift of the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And you can reassure your heart, you can experience confidence and not condemnation by looking to the Spirit and utilizing His power in your life. John began this section by saying, we shall know. We shall know. John's looking ahead. That is, you live life along the way in a world that's set against God and His ways, that's opposed to the real and risen Jesus, that it can be hard. It can be hard because of the pressure that we experience out there in the world, but also from within. Because the reality is you and I will fail and we will falter along the way. So in the future, when it's hard to do all that Jesus calls you to, when it's hard to do all that John has laid out in this letter, you can become overwhelmed with guilt, but remember that you can know, you can know that you are his and he is yours. That's a promise. So if you are going to crush condemnation instead of being crushed by it, the remedy to wayward hearts and weary souls is not some subjective tricks. It's not looking within yourself. 
If I want to know what color the sky is, I don't just look within myself to figure that out. I go outside and look at the sky. The same way, if you want to reassure your heart, you want to crush condemnation, don't look within. Look at the fruit of your life. Look to your God and look to the Spirit. How can you do this? By his word and by his people. When you feel condemnation rising up, don't run away and hide from God or hide from his living and active word. Set yourself under it. Let it remind your head and your heart who your God is and who you are because of who he is. And run to God's people and ask for help. If you find yourself struggling with assurance and being reassured, go ask your community for help. And as a community, be willing to help one another. That's why it's so important for us to be members that are committed to one another. It's that commitment that says, I am for you and I am with you and I'm not going anywhere. Remind each other of who we are in Christ. Use God's word in each other's lives to help one another out of a self-focused condemnation to a God-focused assurance. Church, when I do this, when we do this, we will grow not only in our knowledge of God, but we'll see more and more of the gospel of grace at work in our lives together, transforming us all from one degree of glory to another until he comes again or calls us home. Let me end with this. Put down your your pens or your phones, whatever you're just in front of you right now. And I just want you to listen. I want you to listen to God's word read over you today. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Brothers and sisters, our God is so faithful and he's so good. Our God is greater than our hearts. And to that, I say, we say, amen. You know, God has given us many means of grace to help us live lives of repentance and faith. And one of those means of grace that we get to practice together every week is taking communion together. So if you don't yet have the elements for the Lord's Supper, I invite you to go grab those now. They're in the back on the bottom floor here, out in the lobby and along the railing if you're up in the balcony. You know, this small meal points to a a greater reality that Jesus lived and died and rose again for us. We eat the bread because his body was broken. We drink the cup because his blood was shed so that you would no longer stand condemned, but free. Verse 20, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. When we eat this meal together, we declare that truth about ourselves and about one another. It's a wonderful physical reminder of an eternal reality. And listen, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, 
We're so glad you're here this morning. We would just ask that you not take communion today because this is a declaration that our only hope is in Jesus. So if you haven't yet placed your hope and your faith in him, I wanna invite you to do that today as we're eating and drinking and that you can come back again soon and take communion with us as a new brother, a new sister in Christ. For those of you that will eat and drink today, I wanna invite you to taste and see that the Lord is good. I wanna invite you to encourage you to remember that you are not on your own. I wanna invite you to remember that in fact you are not your own. The first question of the Heidelberg Catechism, a, a teaching tool that the church used some 500 years ago says this, what is your only comfort in life and death? The answer isn't yourself. In fact, I wanna invite us to read this answer out loud together today before we take communion together. What is your only comfort in life and death? Let's answer it together. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life. It makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Amen. So now, let's eat the bread as a reminder of and refreshment of this grace. And now let's drink the cup as a reminder of and refreshment in this grace. Amen, let's pray. Holy, awesome, mighty, gracious, loving, patient God, we worship you. God, we praise you that when our heart condemns us, God, you are greater than our heart. Thank you for saving us and transforming us by the blood shed by your son, by our savior. Thank you, God, for speaking a better word over us and about us and to us. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Help us to not look within, but to look to you. Help us to faithfully follow Jesus and come before you, not in condemnation, but in confidence for grace and mercy and help in time of need. God, we pray that you would assure our hearts, hearts oh God, for your good, for our good and for your glory. And God, we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Church, let me invite you to stand up. We're gonna sing now. And God is greater than our hearts. God is greater than our hearts. I want us to lift our voices in singing loudly and singing joyfully and singing excitedly about what God has done. Let's praise him that our only comfort in life and death is that we are not our own, but belong to him.